Welcome back, my friend, and welcome to episode 19 of this Bible study podcast series, Reading Through the Gospel of Luke. I am so glad you're here with me today because we've got one of the most important moments in the story of the gospel as we read through Peter's confession and the transfiguration of our Lord today. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. Uh, let's let's do it. <laughs> let's Let's begin in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. Once, when Jesus was praying in solitude, and the disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter said in reply, The Messiah of God. He rebuked them and directed them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said, The Son of Man must suffer greatly, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after he said this, he took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. So we begin, we begin this section of reading today, super important section, like we said, begins saying, when Jesus was praying in solitude. So one, again, we see Jesus praying all over the Gospel of Luke. And two, when Jesus is praying, something big is probably going to happen. So Jesus is praying, then he asks the disciples the question, who are people saying that I am? Which is essentially the same question that we saw yesterday, as, as we mentioned yesterday, that Herod was asking the question of, who is this guy? And Jesus asked the disciples, who are people saying? And they give him the same answer that the people gave to Herod. Some people say John, John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. Same three things that we addressed yesterday. Jesus then kind of adjusts the question and says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter 
responds. Peter, Peter is essentially the voice of the group in Luke's gospel. We really don't hear from any of the other 12 in Luke's gospel, but Peter is the one who responds here in, in all versions of this story in the gospels. Peter says, you are the Messiah of God. This is the first person. Peter is the first person, first time that anyone has explicitly identified Jesus as the Messiah. So this is huge. It's a huge identification moment. But Jesus, it says Jesus rebuked them and warned them not to tell anyone. So one, he doesn't deny it, first of all. He's not like, nope, Peter, that's wrong. You're wrong, not the Messiah. Um, So we can essentially assume that it's implied that Peter was correct. And then we find, like, in a little bit, what we just read about the transfiguration, that he kind of affirms and confirms that in revealing his glory. But he, re- he rebukes them and, and tells them not to talk about it. So Jesus really, again, this messianic secret, really wants to keep this on the down low right now. Um, so, now, so now there's a few people in the story who know for sure. Um, and we have, it's the disciples. So it's not just the 12, because again, we mentioned previously that uh, Jesus from his disciples picked 12 whom he called apostles. So anytime we're referring to the apostles or the 12, it's talking about those 12. But here it says Jesus is with the disciples as a whole. So it's a slightly larger group that just heard Peter say this and heard Jesus essentially affirm it. But Jesus, right after Peter says this, essentially affirms his identity as the Messiah, says this, The Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Which I am certain for them was like, wait, what? What did you just say? I thought we just established that you are the Messiah. And really, really nowhere in the Old Testament does it explicitly say anything close to this about the Messiah. Really the closest thing uh, that we have, there's like a few odd things, but uh, in from the prophet Isaiah talking about, uh, in chapter 52 and 53 from the prophet Isaiah, it talks about a suffering servant. And there's there's a lot, and we, we won't go through all of it because we'll find bits of pieces, bits and pieces of it in reference back to that particular section as we kind of continue on in the story as we read through in this series. But um, it's, there's nowhere really explicitly where it says like, yeah, the Messiah is going to come uh, and the Messiah is going to gonna be killed, uh, essentially. This is, this is Jesus' first prediction of the passion. It's kind of a, a new detail or new expectations for the Messiah. It's, it's pretty detailed, this passion prediction that he gives. He says he's going to be rejected by religious leaders. He's going to be killed He's going to rise from the dead on the third day. So first of all, the response I think from them is like, isn't the Messiah that we promised? I mean, we talked about it from uh, from one of the books of Samuel, the, the prophecy that Nathan gave to David about who the Messiah would be, the future Davidic king whose kingdom would last forever. Isn't the Messiah's kingdom supposed to last forever? Then what do you mean, Jesus, that you're going to be killed? What does that mean? And, and what do you mean he'll be, you'll rise from the dead? Does this make any sense to them at this point? I don't know. But I, I, have, I think we have a good sense that this is kind of confusing. It's new. And they certainly don't have a full grasp of what Jesus just said is going to happen to him come eventually. 
Uh, but then Jesus Jesus continues. As soon as he says this, he continues and gives us essentially the conditions of discipleship here. And he says, if you want to follow me, if you believe I'm the Messiah and you're going to follow me, he says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Which again, is probably like, wait, what? First, a cross, take up your cross. Uh, is this maybe reference to like, Roman crucifixion, which was going on at the time, which is like this agonizing, brutal way of suffering. Um, is Jesus implying that to follow him, to follow the Messiah and be his disciple implies this great suffering and not just simply once, but to take it up every day, daily, that, that every day is going to be like this. So it's for, for us too, and applying both to the apostles and the disciples in the story, but to us, that discipleship in Jesus involves suffering, involves denying ourselves in a way, and not just once, but here Jesus says, take up your cross daily, this total surrender, every day, in the day-to-day life, in every moment, fully surrendered to Jesus, not just once, but always. And Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again, we say, wait, what? Following Jesus means death? Is that what Jesus, is that what he is saying right now? That that to follow Jesus means to lose our life in death? Uh, but I think we also see here in this line that Jesus is saying, whether like real or symbolic, it's consistent with this, this theme that we've seen before, particularly when we read through the Beatitudes uh, in the Sermon on the Plain of reversal of fortune, that God reverses and restores our fortune, that if we give of ourselves totally, to the point of like we totally lose our life, we gain life. But if we if we keep to ourselves and we hold on to it ourselves, then even that will be taken away. So Jesus is is calling his disciples to total surrender. That discipleship, the conditions of it are are total surrender. To take up your cross and to surrender everything, to lose your life and to give completely. And Jesus says, like, what profit is there for one to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit himself? That really, in when we think about the life that we could live otherwise, much of it seems like gain in terms of material possession and honor and pleasure and power and whatever it could be, but all of that is loss if it causes us to lose our humanity. Jesus says our personhood, our humanity is greater than the things of the world. And where is our humanity found? In all of this, Jesus says that our humanity is found and fulfilled in life in Christ. And this is, this is what discipleship is, to live in Christ and therefore to find the fullness of our humanity. But Jesus goes on. He continues. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. And I think this is, I mean, in some ways, this is justice for us too. But Jesus essentially says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you deny me, I'll deny you. And again, this is justice, but it also, I think the implication for you and me is that hell is real. That what Jesus says right here is, if we deny Christ, then we essentially choose for ourselves to be denied by Christ. And we choose hell for ourselves because that's justice. And Jesus warns us of this. And he says, when he comes in his glory, 
and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Um, and I think when you when you read that, when I read that, my question is is when is he when is he talking about? Is Jesus talking about like now? If we are ashamed of him now, deny him now, then we'll be denied. Is he talking about his resurrection that he kind of just implied, or? Is he talking about a second coming later on? And I think right here, we find the first possible mention in our story so far of a second coming of Jesus. That eventually, he will come in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And at that point, will be the point of judgment. Whether we chose Jesus, chose to follow him, followed these conditions of discipleship, or if we denied him and chose that justice upon ourselves. But Jesus says that some some here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So even, even there, even what seems like, what sounds super hard, Jesus has been talking about, at least he gives a glimmer of hope. <laughs> he gives this little glimmer of hope at the end that some will see the kingdom of God. And now, I think overall, as we, as we just read through this section right here particularly, it sounds incredibly hard. And I think as we've, we've been reading this story up to this point and everything has sounded pretty good. And the thought, I think, and especially for the disciples at the time, were probably thinking, wasn't the Messiah supposed to make things easier? <laughs> wasn't the Messiah supposed to bring like peace and a kingdom that lasts forever? But now he's saying things like, take up your cross, deny yourself, and a need to die. I mean, I think I would certainly be confused, intimidated in some way. Um, But this is why we need the resurrection. This is why when this plays out in the fulfillment of our story that we continue to read, this is why we today need the resurrection. That in the hope of eternity, in the resurrection life of Jesus, then this all makes sense. Then it's all worth it. Then the dying to self Uh, The taking up your cross makes sense because we unite it to Christ and our reward is great in heaven if we totally surrender ourselves every day. So may we take these words to heart uh, and see that in the sufferings of our lives, especially when we suffer for the sake of Christ and with Christ as his disciples, uh, it's all worth it in the grander scheme of, of heaven and eternity in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says these words to his disciples and he just like kind of lays down the hammer and they're probably all a little bit confused, a little intimidated and don't quite know what this means. And it says eight days later, so about a week later, this happens where they go to a mountain and Jesus again takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the top, the big three. Um, and he takes them up a mountain to pray. Now we know that this is going to be big time because again, when Jesus is praying, something big usually happens. And on a mountain throughout the Bible, big things happen on mountains. So prayer times mountain equals very big things about to happen. Then it says the three fell asleep while Jesus is praying. And while they're asleep, Jesus is transfigured into dazzling light. Jesus, the light of the world, the radiance of heaven. And as he's transfigured, Moses and Elijah appear next to him, two of the giants of the Old Testament. Moses, the the giver of the law from God to the people of Israel. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. These two giants, uh, these two most well-known characters of, of the Old Testament. And it says 
that they were there speaking with Jesus of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. My, my question is if the three were asleep, who heard this to know what they were talking about? Um, at least that's my like surface level question to it. I'm sure that like they probably woke up and heard a little bit of the details and then passed along the details or whatever. But his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem, what exactly does that mean? Because if we, we hear that word exodus and we are drawn back to uh, the Old Testament and to the Bible and the story of the exodus with Moses, who's right here, uh, where Moses led the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, that that was the Old Testament exodus. What will Jesus's exodus be like then? The exodus that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem, that what we'll find later on is Jesus breaks the bonds of slavery to sin, this greater slavery, not just slavery to an oppressive rule, but to the the rule of, of Satan, the slavery to sin. And by his death, break those bonds of slavery and in his resurrection, open up the gates of heaven to the eternal and true promised land. That Jesus, the new Moses, brings about through his death and resurrection, the new exodus of of breaking the bonds of slavery to sin and entrance to the promised land of heaven. But that's getting way ahead in our story. But uh, we'll we'll read more about that as we go on. But that is that is the incredible good news of the gospel right there in a nutshell. The new Exodus, Jesus, the new Moses, taking us out of our slavery, slavery and bringing us to the promised land of heaven. And then uh, as they're as they're speaking, the th- the three wake up at some point, probably because it's super bright and like, oh, is it morning already? And they saw his glory, the glory of God. Jesus filled with the radiance of heaven. They get a, a legitimate glimpse of heaven. Uh, and we, we see this in the, in the New Testament writings as well. Uh, Peter and James, or Peter and John give, give testimony to this. That in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, John says, we have seen his glory. And similarly, Peter in the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 16 says, we have seen his glory. They're referring to this moment where they saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ transfigured. Um, an incredible moment that they probably remembered for the rest of their earthly lives. And in a moment of awe and astonishment and wonder, Peter, who it's, it's Luke notes, did not know what he was saying because he was so awestruck and just gawking at what's going on, Peter says, let us make three tents for us. A few things that we could, we could say a bunch of things about Peter's response in the moment right there. Um, but I think it's fair. Like I'm, I'm siding with Peter on this one because I think in a moment of amazement where just eager, ambitious Peter feels like he needs to do something, like he feels like he needs to have an act of worship. He's present before Moses and Elijah and Jesus in in some kind of transfigured glory. And I think in some way we could make the connection here that maybe Peter is making a connection to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, This would be in Leviticus chapter 23, but essentially what what they would do in the the yearly feast uh, was at the, the end of the harvest. They would set up for a week to live in tents or essentially like what Peter's saying or booths or tents 
essentially same word, uh, to celebrate and to worship and to remember God's providence for a week. So maybe this is Peter's kind of automatic worship response that like tents are a place of worship. We have an incredible moment going on. Let's set up tents here and let's worship. Let's celebrate this moment that you have brought us to Jesus. Maybe in some way this is like the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles that Peter, James, and John are currently experiencing. Probably the downfall though of what Peter says in his ambitious moment is he says, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And in saying that, in some ways, he's placing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the same level playing field, which indicates to us that Peter did not quite have a grasp of the importance of Jesus in his full identity as the Messiah, that he's not on the same playing field as Moses and Elijah, but that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah still. Jesus is greater than Moses, the giver of the law, greater than Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, but Jesus in himself is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the glory of God transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And as Peter is gawking at the moment and is trying to like say something to fill the space, God cuts him off, (laughs) which is hilarious. It says, while he was speaking, a cloud overshadowed them. So God enters into the scene. We've seen this Previously, if we, again, look back to Moses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 24, verse 15, it says, Moses went up the mountain, then the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled upon Mount Sinai. So we have this Old Testament imagery um, that's, again, here in the New Testament of God, like God the Father as the cloud covering the mountain. So they enter into the cloud, same way that Moses did in the Old Testament, and the cloud, a voice from the cloud speaks those words, this is my chosen son, listen to him. There's words that echo from Jesus' baptism back in chapter 3, verse 22, and God the Father looks down and says, my chosen son, and says, listen to him. And as the cloud departs, Jesus is found alone. That God is not talking primarily about listen to Moses or listen to Elijah, but that Jesus is the one to be listened to. Jesus is the one to be heeded above and over Moses and Elijah. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the chosen son of God and the Messiah, the Savior who has come. So in this moment of the transfiguration, Jesus confirms his glory after Peter's confession about his identity as the Messiah. This is a massive identification moment for Jesus in our gospel, who uh, Peter, James, and John get a glimpse at his glory on the mountain. What an incredible scene. I, who, man, what would I do in that moment? What, what silly things would I say alongside Peter if I was on the mountain during the transfiguration? And I pray that you and I one day can get that same glimpse of God's glory together in heaven. Hope you got something out of this today. I'm so thankful you were here with me. Can't wait to do it again tomorrow. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you.